to the Winter Palace. I'm your host, Mark Cole, editor and publisher of Odessa Steps Magazine. After eight years, I'm happy to say we finally have Mark Wade on the podcast, and we're going to talk about something near and dear to both of our hearts, continuity. We're going to talk about why the notion of the multiverse has become so popular to the general public, and the history of things like the multiverse and DC's multiple Earths. We'll talk about pre-crisis, crisis, hypertime, where things may or may not have gone off the rails with DC in terms of continuity, and how Mark and some other folks at DC are trying to right the ship. If you saw his recent Big Bang comic, you'll know that the multiverse is back, and he helped design and lay out all of the new multiple Earths. There's a nice handy-dandy chart in that issue that we're going to talk about, including some fairly obscure DC stuff that I'm very happy to say made the cut. We're also going to talk about his new books, World's Finest, Batman vs. Robin, and the upcoming Shazam. We didn't nearly touch on all the things that we wanted to talk about, so I'm hopeful that Mark will be back again sometime in the future. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Winter Palace. I can finally cross our guests off the show's bucket list, as it's someone I've wanted to have on the show since the very start. And it's taken us until episode 117, which I'm sure our guests can tell you is that that's the first appearance of Captain Boomerang in The Flash. And that's the kind of stuff that we're going to be talking about today. When I was trying to figure out the best topic of conversation, I realized he was the perfect person to discuss how something like the concept of the multiverse has crossed over from genre fiction to your everyday pop culture consumer. And I'm sure we'll discuss his current projects, which also tap into that, including his recent establishment of DC's latest cataloging of their multiple horse. So after all that, here he is, a man I sold comics to over 25 years ago, Mark Wade. This is true. This is true. I would say not only sold, but traded. I don't know if, if you remember this, but we once traded... I traded you a stack of DC 100-page giant romance comics for a copy of Cancelled Comics Cavalcade before it was uh, more easily available the way it is these days. Oh, that's right. I totally forgot, but that would certainly explain why I have a ton of young love and young romance sitting around. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, one of my friends and I were just rummaging around. We were at like a flea market barn sale or something like that around Lancaster. Cause this is when you lived around Philly. Yeah. And so we used to go up and shop at some of the stores up there. Cause that's not far from where I am. And we found like, I, I believe uh, my friend's mother had told him that at this place, they had found a bunch of like old, really thick comics, which made us think, well, this, <laughs> this this could be 100-pagers or 80-page giants or something like that. Either way, it's something that we would want to check out. And when we found they were like 100-page romances, we are like, this is this is like finding a five-leaf clover. This is not something you find in the wild very often. Very, That's very true. And, and, yeah, yeah. And, and I think I mentioned to you either one of those weeks or one of the times I saw you more frequently around then, 
And you were like, man, it's like, I wouldn't mind having this. And then we were trying to figure out what you might have that you're willing to part with. And so, yeah, you made a copy of your copy. So I don't know what generation that would have been. But, yeah, so I had... I had a copy of Console Cancel Comics Cade, you know, sometime in the late 90s before. I think it's eventually been reprinted officially now. No, actually it hasn't. It's never been officially reprinted, which is – which seems like a shame until you actually look what's in there and see that it's pretty dreadful stuff. I mean, you know, you know I, was, I was one of those people who just had to have a copy, had to have a copy. I wanted a copy more than anything in the world. Once I got it and read through it, I thought – wow, there's a good reason why these stories weren't used anywhere. So, Yeah, and for people that don't know, this was around the time of the DC implosion when they cut their line back, I want to say by half or maybe even more than that, and it was a lot of things, their lower-selling books or backup strips that they ended up basically Xeroxing in black and white and putting together and making quote-unquote canceled comics cavalcade with things like the missing issue of the freedom fighters. I think an issue of secret society is things that I would care about like freedom fighters and secrets. Yeah. Secret society and you know, power girl and steel and things like that. Those books that were around in the late seventies, but that's for people who may not know what that is or have only heard about it. That's what it is. Yeah. It's a Holy grail until you actually have one (laughs) and then you realize this is, it's more about the having than it is the reading. Well, but that's you know. Well, that's I think that's a lot of the thing that used to be true for collecting up until maybe the internet age. That the hunt was almost more important than actually getting the book itself. Like things that you had only heard about, or you know, that might not have even been something like a first issue or anything important. Just like. You know, some random, you know, like I said, a lot of those DC 70s books, I know that was something I went after for a while. And then I'm sure you know this, like I got to the point where it's like, well, I have everything that I wanted. And that's when I started, you know, that's when you started expanding to things like war books and Westerns. And then, you know, and then and then you end up with romance because those are probably the hardest things to find, you know. Right. Those are the funny animal ones. Yeah. But the thing is, there, as you said, you know, there is no hunt anymore. The hunt doesn't exist anymore. It's, you know, last night I realized I was missing an issue of Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, and I, so I went on to eBay and I found it and I bought it. It's that simple. So, you know, the, the whole, the whole idea of having to go years, you know, in search for the rare this or the rare that, I miss that. I miss. I used to go into the San Diego convention with a fistful of, uh, of, of you know, cash and walk out of there with a stack of books two feet high. And now I haven't bought anything in San Diego for probably 10 years. Um, it's a shame. It just, it, I do miss the hunt of it. Yeah, that's the thing. Like the first couple of years that I went to San Diego, you know, I saw things that I had only, re- you know, this is, you know, the mid 90s. So, right. yeah, it was things that I had only read about, you know, certainly like key Golden Age books that I was never going to be able to afford copies of unless they were like horrible low grade but just to actually see you know something like that this happened to me once i may have told you this story before i was doing a research paper for a conference when i was in grad school that was about um silver age dc and sort of how 
because the the conference was about the atomic age, and so my my paper was going to be about how when Julie revived all of these all of the golden age characters in the silver age, they all now had a science or pseudoscience bent to them. Right. You know, Hawkman was a reincarnated prince, and now he's an alien policeman. Green Lantern's ring was magic, and now it's pseudoscience. The Atom was a short guy. Now he's, you know, a scientist involved, you know, a physicist, whatever, whatever. So anyway, so I was at Bowling Green, and we had lots of comics, but we didn't have, like, the the Golden Silver Age stuff that I wanted to read. So I went to Michigan State, because I knew Pete Coogan, who was like, right. who worked in the library up there. And we went in, and I said, you know, and he knew what my paper was about. And so we go in, and he's like, well, what do you want to start with? And I said can I have the first 10 issues of Flash? Because, you know, like, there may have been trades at that point, but I'm not sure, like, if I had one or not. So I expected, you know, like, the first four issues of Showcase and the first 10 issues of Flash or whatever. He brings out the first 10 issues of Flash comics. Wow. Okay. And I'm like, one, wow. Two, that's not what I need. But three, I'm going to read these first. And then you can take them back and bring me what I want because, you know, I had read Flash Comics 1 when they put out that treasury. But, you know, I had never read any no, of the other ones. That. No, none of us had, exactly. So, I, I yeah. I mean, I remember the feeling, and I, this sounds like a joke, but it's completely serious. The first time I actually went into the DC library, walked in that room, and realized what I was surrounded with, I nearly passed out from excitement. Just the idea that every comic book I would ever want to read is within fingers grasp, you know. Yeah, and this of course all ties into this notion of continuity in the multiverse, the stuff that we're going to talk about, is I've found it really fascinating over the last I guess maybe ten years or so, like how common this sort of multiverse idea has become. Like I guess it starts probably with the with the Marvel movies since they're sort of interwoven and that's when right. people sort of know about it and then you get the Spider-Verse cartoon, you know, which was this big hit and award winner and things like that and that's you know maybe one of the first time the general public was exposed to the multiverse but now it's like you know every film studio has like their multiverse or whatever they want to yeah. They want to call it, there's, you know, DC names their video game, like, Multiversity or Multiverse, whatever it's actually called. But I guess my question is, one, do you have a theory on why this has become so popular? I I think just the excitement of the Marvel movies probably sold it to so many people that were casual, you know, fans of heroic fiction, maybe, but not necessarily comics fans. Because they've just done it so well and so and, and with such an exciting way of doing it. Because uh, DC had it for a long time. The, 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 other, the other problem is that, and the, this frustration for me is that you know DC owns that stuff. I mean, DC created the idea in comics of multiple universes and parallel worlds and so forth. And then through an incredible blunder, uh, we went through a, a long period at DC Comics in the in the 90s and so forth where. It was considered something we didn't want to touch that was old fashioned or confusing or it was not something we should do anything with. And, and so Marvel got a chance to kind of swoop in 
and pick up that baton, and now we're trying to catch up at DC, trying to remind people, hey, we were there first, but it doesn't matter. Marvel, you know, as far as the general public is concerned, you know, when you say multiverse, you mean Marvel Comics. So good for them. I'm glad they can run with it. But I do love the fact that it's so much part of the mainstream that I know when my fiance and I went to a screening of Everywhere, Everything All at Once, I was five minutes in and I was terrified that she and the, because she has no, I mean, she, she's a lovely woman. I adore her to death. She has no use for any of this stuff. She that's not disdainful of comics, but it's just not it, comics and heroic fiction is just not her thing. So I was terrified she was going to be awash in confusion. And instead, no. I mean, they got it all across, and you know, she got what was going on. The audience got what was going on. Clearly, the you know, Academy Motion Picture Academy got what's going on because it's now it's up for all kind of Oscars. And you know, I'm just I'm. It's exciting to see that it's broken through to the mainstream. Um, a side note on that is that I, you know, I, I ran into Pat Oswalt at the screening, and afterwards, I just pulled him aside and said, you know, it's kind of cool that for the first thirty minutes, you and I were looking at this movie like, ah, that's all stuff we've seen before, and nobody else in the audience was doing that, and then, you know, and then it kicked into stuff that even we had never seen before. But that's a long answer to your short question, but I think it's. I think it's poked through because Marvel made it cool. You know, the thing that I always used to tell people is, you know, I mean, I started reading comics when I was a kid in the mid-70s. So, you know, I I was used to the, if nothing sure. more than the Justice League, Justice Society crossover. And I always tell people, like, I've never understood why Multiple Earths was confusing when... You know, every year there was one panel in a DC comic that showed overlapping Earths and people with the same name who are dressed differently. And you're like, you know, here's, you know, here's Barry here's Allen. Here's Aquaman and here's Dr. Fate. Yeah. This is, but it's yeah, like, here. yeah, yeah. It's here's Hal Jordan. Here's Alan Scott. Right. Here's, you know, Power Ring. Cause you know, at that point it was, you know, the three and then, you know, the, and again, it's weird that you know part of the multiverse was also a function of DC buying all these other universes. Right. You know, when you get Earth S and Earth X, and I do love the fact that we'll get to the 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 DC the Big Bang issue that you wrote recently. But I like that Earth S has become Earth Five and Earth X has become Earth Ten, which I think is like a nice nod to those of us old enough to remember, like, pre-crisis numbering. Yeah, I think so. I, and that's all Grant. That's all Grant Morrison's doing, and good for him. He, he did that very nicely. Um, no, I'm totally with you on this. I never thought it was confusing as a kid. I mean, you have to have a PhD in X-Menology to read X-Men, and people still buy and read that comic. And so I don't... I, I do think that, to be fair, it, it was... You know, it was DC making a gesture to simplify their continuity for new fans, but it was also to get their attention. It's the old joke about sometimes you have to hit the mule in the head with a two by four to get his attention. And at that point in time, if DC wanted to once more level up to the Marvel playing field where they had sort of been eclipsed by Marvel for the last 10 years, they needed to do something drastic and send a shot across the bow for non-DC readers to say, 
here is something huge we're doing, and you can start reading DC Comics here. If you've never read them before, here's the perfect jumping on point. And I get that. I mean, that philosophy has been now overused so many times since then that it's become meaningless. But I get why you would do that back then. It's a shame because, again, you and I love the Golden Age characters. We love the multiple Earths, and none of us were confused. But, you know, it's easy for me to say because I love that stuff. It's not I wasn't a hardcore Marvel fan at that time who wouldn't look at DC Comics. And maybe my opinion of how confusing it would have been would have been different if I hadn't grown up as a child reading all these Justice League, Justice Society stories. I don't know. And then right after Crisis, um, you know, this is one of the many things that I dug out for research on this, is uh, you did this big, giant issue of Amazing Heroes where yeah. you, were, you were the guest editor, and you wrote maybe half of everything in there that was about, you know, who got killed, who's new again, quote-unquote. And then I'd have to think about it, but... I didn't realize that also has like a crisis annotation in it, which, you know, I was one of those many people in the nineties that, you know, loved doing annotations. You know, I like, we're both friends with Jess Nevins. He became sort of like the annotation King. Right. With that. And, you know, and I did that, that Starman fanzine for a while that I know you helped me sort of proof edit a couple of times with some of the facts in it. That, you know, again, that's the kind of thing that people like us love. But, like, I was reading that Amazing Heroes issue again, and I was, I had sort of forgotten some of the, some of the things that were, like, I don't, like, I know all the main points in Crisis, obviously. Mm -hmm. But, like, some of the little things I had just forgotten. So that was cool to read again. But. Yeah, there was a, there was a point at which, in, like, 1985, 1986, 1987, where I knew more about crisis on infinite earths than any other human being walking around except for marv not even george knew because i would every once in a while call george with a question about one of the characters and he would he would go oh i didn't realize that was that character's providence i just thought he was cool and they put him in there and you know i that meant you know all that knowledge has since sifted away but it was a point of pride at that point where, yeah, I know more about what's going on in, in crisis and, and, and the DC universe than any other human being on the face of the earth, except for Marv. And then a few years later, um, when you did you did Kingdom Come and then you did Planet Krypton, and then do we say that you, quote-unquote, created Hypertime, or was it a combination of you and Grant and, and other guys around at DC at the time? It was it was Grant and I. It was I mean it was mostly Grant. It was you know Grant having a bunch of ideas about how continuity could work and how storytelling could work and a bunch of sketches on napkins. And I helped and you know contributed to kibitz here and there. I am the one who came up with the name Hypertime. That's that much I remember. Uh, but yeah, I you know it, that was an attempt to. Just say, look, you know, if you read it, it exists. If you enjoyed it as a kid, we're no longer trying to make you feel bad that you enjoyed this comic when you were a child because we're trying to ignore it. Instead, we're saying, look, it's, you know, storytelling is infinite. Storytelling possibilities are infinite. So that's what Hypertime was meant to be as a way of just saying, look, everything happened. You know, everything in, in, you ever read in a DC comic happened somewhere and just enjoy that. 
And is Hypertime official? Did I see that Hypertime was like mentioned in? Have you mentioned it in like that story in World's Finest that you guys just finished with the the kid from the parallel world? Yeah, he makes a reference to his parents enjoying or parents inventing a Hypertime drive, which allows him to pass from parallel world to parallel world. So that was really that wasn't really intended specifically to reference hypertime as we know it as much as it was just i needed a cool name for that drive and that fit because it goes between parallel worlds i thought the coolest thing about that arc was i was like hey i remember that costume i assume it's a reference to to nova oh yeah okay because i was i'm like i remember this and i had to like i don't know if i still have the issue but like i went through like the dc wikipedia looking at i'm like i know it's in world's finest and i know it's in like you know, it's before issue 200, so I was, like, flipping through the covers, and I was like, there it is. I'm like, I knew it was in there somewhere. But, yeah, so... I the, love that, yeah. I love that costume. Yeah, and it's it's funny, too, because it's it's a... He's a good guy, yet he wears purple and green, the traditional villain colors. Right. It was just fun. I mean, it, it was just... It was a nod to that costume, because I've always loved that costume, and, you know, my favorite, my favorite thing about that whole arc that we just did is that I kept telling people... You know, who kept saying, "How come we've never heard of this character before? How come Boy Thunder, if he's if he's set in the past, how come Superman's never mentioned him, or there's never been any reference to Superman having a, a sidekick?" And the answer is because you know that character. Just surprise, you don't think you, you know, you don't realize you know that character. No one guessed. As many clues as I threw out there, no one guessed, which is a point of pride. The other theory that I have, and I'll bounce this off you as a creator who was who was involved in this idea on multiple levels. The idea that I've had about why the multiverse is so popular now is that it allows creators to tell new stories using variations of already existing IP that they don't have to use any new IP for that they can keep for creator-owned works or whatever. So, like, if you had a story to tell... With a new character, a new character X that you invented, that if you worked for Marvel and DC, that it's not difficult to sort of transplant that and make it another Superman or another Spider-Man, so you could functionally tell the story you wanted to tell, but without necessarily sacrificing any of your original ideas. Is that crazy, or is there do you think a kernel of truth in that? I don't know. I mean, I never thought about it that way because I don't. I just don't approach it that way. But I suppose. I mean, I guess there is a way of saying, okay, I, I've got this character I created, but I don't want DC to own him. Therefore, I will just do a sort of a pastiche of my own character in the form of a an Elseworlds or a you know a, a Hypertime stories. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's possible, but I I think it's more that creators lean into hypertime and lean into all these different continuities because they just enjoy what they read, you know, growing up or they enjoy the possibility of worlds where they're not locked into what's happening in detective comics this month in terms of hardcore continuity, you know? Yeah. I, I was, I just had a thought cause I know that there, there's a couple things, you know, that I had thought of that I know, you know, instances where people have pitched something at DC or Marvel, and it, and then it ended up not being accepted there or not used or whatever, and then they took it somewhere, 
and made new characters out of it. And so, like, like my thought was that that could also work in reverse, that you have this idea, and rather than, you know, um, like this character to not, you know, sign it over to DC or right. Marvel to keep it. Because the thing that, the one that I always sort of quote to people is, I remember, like, around the time period we were talking about before, that I remember... Mark Miller telling me about this Secret Society of Supervillains story that he was working on, or project, Why? or whatever, that never sort of happened, and then sort of uh, evolved a little and became wanted. Right, exactly. Yeah, so, I mean, that happens, it happens more in the reverse. I think it's less, you know, I have a character I want to do something with, but I don't want DC to own it, so I'm going to dress it up this way. I think it, the reverse happens more often, where it's you know, I, I have an idea for a DC character, but they won't let me do it, so let me just take it somewhere else and and dress it up differently. But, I mean, is... But, like, when you had Irredeemable and... Is it... Incorruptible. Incorruptible. Yes, yeah. You know, I mean, that... I mean, obviously, that's probably not a story you would have wanted to do with real Superman, I would imagine. But it's like... Well, but it's an idea that you had that you wanted to explore, and so you just did it creator-owned. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it, exactly. I wouldn't want to have done it with Superman because I think that, you know, the idea of what if Superman turned into a monster is, you know, is a, is a real gross way of approaching Superman as a character. The uh, Something that you said I thought was interesting when you talked about Crisis being a jumping on, the DC wanted Crisis as a jumping on point, you know, with the burned Superman and everything else and George's Wonder Woman. And things like that. But I remember, I think that the converse, unfortunately, can also be true. Because I remember when New 52 happened, where they basically said, in my opinion, you know, we're starting everything over. And I was like, well, then the 75 years of stuff that I know don't matter anymore. And this is just a good a jumping off point for me as jumping on. Right. So, I mean, since New 52, I've probably only read, you know, like the occasional title here and there, and that, like, it may be more non-continuity stuff, you know, like, uh, or things that were new concepts or things like that, you know, like uh, like Tom King's Mr. Miracle book, which was, you know, didn't really have much to do with anything. It was just, you know, him using Mr. Miracle to tell that story. Right. Or, or like individual maxi series kind of projects that weren't necessarily tied into the whole continuity. I mean, I've told people for the last three or four years that my favorite DC book was that Scooby Doo team up book that Charlie Fish wrote. Oh, I love that. Because exactly. yes. you know it had all of these great sort of pre-crisis or old school versions, you know, characters and. Again, simple stories, you know, um, not overly hyper-violent, which, you know, I sometimes don't necessarily like more modern comics for, you know, you know the general coarsening and dark, you know, the, the kind of things everybody always sort of says now about modern comics on as a generality. Right. But I love, but I mean, I love that book, you know, and then they when they did the, when they rebooted it as Batman Superman, 
you know, those have been really fun reads because I know for a while, like during the probably in the 2000s with Marvel, that you know I was saying, while there were lots of still good Marvel books, that you know the things I was sort of enjoying most were those like adventures books that like. Jeff Parker and Paul Tobin and Fred Van Lenthe yeah. were writing. You know, again, the sort of archetypal, simple, done-in-one versions of characters that you didn't need all the baggage to read that were just really told well and drawn really well that you didn't need to get bogged down by. Right. And again, those are good entry points to kids. You know, I was one of those people that, you know, used to buy uh, books out of the dollar box to get to give kids for Halloween. Mm. You know what I mean? Like those, and then like all the DC animated books and stuff like that, that I'm glad there's always, you know, been a market for them, you know, over, you know, that they haven't gone away, that they're always there for like younger readers, or I guess I would say sort of like lapsed readers. Right. But, but do you think, um, I was going to say, I mean, now with the stuff that you're sort that, you're doing at DC is is that maybe is this going to be like a new kind of jumping on point and that you'll be able to maybe entice people like entice lapsed readers back that you'll have more of a you know sort of old school flavor to some of the stuff that you guys are doing now I think that's the goal I mean the, the you know the remit from DC was don't worry about continuity just um, make it classic versions of these characters where, you know, here's Commissioner Gordon, here's the Bat Stigma, here's Lois Lane, and here's the Daily Planet, Superman has a secret identity, and all the stuff that, that most people think of when they think of Superman and Batman. So uh, I, the fact that it is done very well for DC, I think, opens up the door for us to do more things like that. Uh, and I am excited about that. And I think that, I, you know, I'm working on at least one thing at DC that sort of falls under that same, you know, that, that same sort of uh, set of rules or no rules, you know, and I'm enjoying this. It, it, I, it's not about flashing back. It's not about nostalgia. It's not about going back to, you know, to simpler times or simpler stories. It's not about telling silver age stories over again at all. It's just about trying to get back to the core of these characters and not worry so much about what's happening this month with these characters specifically that you know makes it difficult to tell a story where two characters meet because in current DC continuity Superman's on another planet right now and Batman is not Batman or whatever. Um, I was looking through the 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 Big Bang issue that you wrote that has all of the various multiple Earths in it. And so one of the things I was going to ask about was whose idea was it to do Earth 789, which which is the continuity for the Christopher Reeve and Michael Keaton Batman movies? It was originally Earth 78 and Earth 89, and actually it was the editor of the DC Comics adaptations that they're doing of those you know, the continuance of the Superman 78 continuity and the Batman 89 continuity. It was that editor who said, you know, why don't you just combine them together? And it went out like that. And I, I thought it was a really clever idea because now that opens up the door for them to be able to do some sort of crossover with Michael Keaton and Christopher Reeve. Who knows? 
And there's also Earth 66, which is the Batman television show, which I thought was yeah. a, which was cool. There was one other. I'm very, I'm very proud of the description for that. Here's the because the thing is, when I listed all those series, I had to make sure that every one of them had a descriptor that would let you know what what that world was about. But it had to be very terse, very brief because there wasn't a lot of room. So I think it was. I think the description of Batman 66 was you know, a world in which Batman fights especially benign villains, which I thought was the perfect summation of this of the Adam West show. Yeah, the other one I thought was sort of, I, I don't know if it had existed before. I'm glad that there's a separate Earth for the Super Friends, too, which I thought was, I thought actually, was nice. Actually, it's not a separate Earth. It's actually Earth 1. That's, what, that's the old Earth 1. And it was put there specifically, I used the Super Friends as a reference specifically because that it was the clearest way to me to make sure that you understood we were talking about Earth One and not just another Earth where there's a bunch of superheroes because that specifically was set on Earth One. It's just there weren't a whole lot of crossovers with it, but you know, Green Flame who turned into Fury and and Ice Maiden who turned into Ice and some of these characters came out of Doctor Miss came out of the, that book and Nelson Bridwell who was writing that book in the seventies firmly believed and wrote it as if it were an Earth-1 book. And this is just the stuff that Superman and Batman were doing off to the side when they weren't starring in their own adventures. Yeah, there were some that I was surprised, I guess, for lack of a better word, made the cut. Like, I'm glad to see that the Super Sons still exist. Yep. I don't know, is that is that Earth Bob Haney for or whatever whatever the number would be? That would probably be Earth what we used to call Earth B, probably, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was just a way of, of nodding to all of that Bob Haney continuity of the 70s where Bob was writing all the DC characters in Brave and Bold without the slightest concern about actual continuity and who was on what Earth and who had met and what their MO was and what their powers were and so forth. Bob just did his own thing, which annoyed me as a kid, but looking back... Those are entertaining stories, and they were, at times, the best-selling Batman book. It, it, there were long periods of time in which Brayton Bolton was the best-selling Batman book, and so it's hard to argue with a writer doing that stuff and tell him he's, not, he's doing it wrong if his book is outselling Batman and Detective Comics. Yeah, and I'm also glad there's still room for uh, the Inferior Five and Angel and Ape and all of... and the books from that corner of the DC universe. Yeah. My, my, my only vanity world. And the only one that I put in there only because it amused me was there's earth 387, a world in which people are just like us, except they're all werewolves. And I just thought that was hysterical. I remember that story and I thought that was hysterical. And so I just, that's the only one I slipped in that I can't really justify except that it made me laugh. And but it's a pretty good list. I mean, it's it's not it's not completely comprehensive because otherwise it would have had to be in four point type, and I can't expect you to buy something that I can't read because it's too small. So, you know, I covered it with Barry Allen saying these are the ones I found so far, but I'm sure there's plenty more out there. These are the only ones that are known to Harvard. There may be others, but they haven't been discovered. Discovered, exactly. Yes, yes. 
Yeah, there, I mean, I have to admit, there's some that, like, I don't know because they're more modern versions, which is fine, because, like I said, you know, I'm happy, you know, if there's the, I guess, maybe, is it Deceased? Is that sort of like the DC version of Marvel Zombies? Like, that's that's an Earth, I think, and or th- something right, like that. A, that kind of thing, like, that's an Earth, and, you know, other... The Dark Knights of Steel, which is a current series that's set, an Elseworld series that's set in a in a world in which the superheroes came about during the time of King Arthur. You know, that's also its own separate world. So I just I try to make it I try to make room for as much of what's being published in DC right now as I possibly could. I also do like the uh, that there's still room for the amalgamed user universe if for some re- somehow they can ever be done again right. that, that right. We there's there's right. still we hope expl- yeah for any lawyers listening we didn't explicitly say that it just you're gosh mark i have no idea what you're talking about <laughs> yeah. I, you know because that would you know we can't actually say that that thing exists for continuity reasons because it's a different company so i have no idea what in the world you're talking about no but the stan but yeah. the, but the but the stan lee created the dc universe still exists that's in there yeah that's cool. So, uh, like you said, you, what you guys are working on, I know that you're doing World's Finest, which we, we've mentioned, which is the Batman and Superman, obviously, and then mm-hmm. loads of guest stars. I love seeing like the original Doom Patrol show up. That was that was fun. And then you've also got Batman versus Robin, which is Bruce and Damian. Um, what 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 else that's been announced that's coming up? Can you can you tell us about? Uh, Shazam has been announced, which is great. I'm glad that cat is finally out of the bag. It's it's my you know I've been wanting to take a swing at that character who I can't stop calling Captain Marvel, even though we can't actually call him that. I've been wanting to take a swing at that character since I was a kid, and luckily Dan Mora, who is drawing World's Finest, is so fast and so incredibly fast that he can do two books a month, and that's the second one. So the two of us will be working on that as well. And that is, you know, we're playing as much as I can within the current established continuity of Shazam and what Jeff Johns has set up. But at the same time, the tone of it, I think, is going to be a lot closer to what Impulse used to be. I think I think of it as a comedy book with adventure rather than a uh, superhero book with a little bit of comedy in it. I, I flipped the ratio there, and I want it to be, you know, a genuinely funny, laugh-out-loud, fun book that in no way makes fun of the characters and doesn't treat them with anything other than respect, but there's just there's a lot of comedy to be had out of that. I mean, I think that's what was great about the Ordway Captain Marvel book, was that it was fun but still serious at the same time, you know, whereas, you know, maybe the seventies book was a little, maybe too cartoony sometimes, but I thought the stakes were, the stakes were very low. This is the problem with Captain Marvel, that character, Captain Marvel, I I will keep calling Captain Marvel is that I, I've read every single story. I've read every single golden age, Captain Marvel story. I've read every single appearance of that character. And the, the problem with translating him into the modern era is is the only problem with translating it into the Marvel era in the modern era is that the commonality of all of those stories is that the stakes were low. The stakes were always insanely low. 
Captain Marvel finds a book that can tell the future. That's a story. Captain Marvel finds the piece, a, a piece of string that it turns out extends into another dimension. That's a story. And I'm not making fun. These are delightful stories, and they were fun to read as a kid, and they're fun to read now. But you can't tell those kind of stories in comics today and not make people just, you know, not drive younger readers away. You need stakes. You need there to be some importance to what's happening. You need a sense of menace in these books so that things matter. And at the same time, doing that through the lens of Shazam and doing that through the lens of, of comedy is a challenge, but I, you know, I tackled it pretty well in Impulse back in the day, and I think I can do it here too. So that in, you know, there's stakes, but at the same time, this is not a grim and gritty book. Oh, well, before we go, uh, since you mentioned Impulse, I remember if people didn't hear or see you comment about this online, how cool was it to see Impulse in a in a DC television show? Oh, that was great. It's not just not just the Impulse, but he looks exactly right i mean except for the giant feet he looks he that's his costume like they didn't feel a need to give him armor and you know fake abs and uh, you know, uh, whatever they didn't feel a need to dress it up same with xs to a large extent too i mean it's, it's just so much fun to see all these things i created for the the flash mythos along with brian augustine uh to finally see fruition and and yeah, seeing Impulse on my TV was just a, a high point. That's on the highlight reel when I die. That's great. Mark, I want to thank you very much. Well, I'm glad we finally got around to doing this. We've we've, we've actually been talking about doing this on and off, I think, for maybe six months. But schedules didn't line up in the holidays and, and what have you. And I think it probably timed out exactly right that we that Big Bang only came out, or, uh, came out a couple weeks ago. And so it was the perfect thing for us to talk about fitting in this topic. The yep. only the only thing I didn't squeeze in is I actually dug out my copies of Omniverse to read. Oh, no, I love to, that magazine. To, oh my god, to, I love that magazine. To talk about so so maybe the next time we have you on we'll talk about it for people that don't know. You know, among continuity nerds, you know, I'm one Mark's a big one. Mark Grunewald may have been like the biggest multiverse nerd of them all. He was yeah. The, yeah he was the king he was the king of all that so yes. and you know so it was great to see him get immortalized in Loki yeah in a way and that but so yeah so next time you'll come back on maybe we'll talk about all the stuff that's in Omniverse um, you know Doom and you know Kang you know Kang's a big thing now and Kang's part yeah. of you know Kang's on the cover of one of those so Mark thanks again everybody pick up uh, Mark's new books at DC uh, thanks again and we will talk to everybody next time. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Gone off 007 And Danger Man is out oh, There is someone super